This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Always comes back to Reagan whenever you want to think about like where the economy went wrong, where the housing crisis originated from. Homophobia. Reaganomics, man. Still fucking us to this day. Welcome to Millennial, the home of pretend adulting and real talk. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. It is Tuesday. Happy Target Tuesday. And I don't mean the department store. Donald Trump said he received a Target letter, which likely indicates that he will be indicted for a third time. This will be the second time that Jack Smith is indicting him over at the Justice Department. Isn't this in relation to his role in January 6th? Yes, this one's about January 6th. Man, I I saw that notification this morning and I thought to myself, is this a delayed notification from a month ago? Like I I got deja (laughs) vu. I could not believe we were already seeing this again. And what a birthday gift to you, Pam. Your birthday is Wednesday, July 19th. Happy Mm -hmm. early birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. A gift for me, a gift for all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of, though, I just want to say really quickly that Laura and Mark sent me a surprise birthday gift. They sent me this really nice bag of coffee and it's delicious. And um, I'm drinking some of it now on the show. So it's going to good use. I'm glad that you like it. It's really nice. Yeah. That is so sweet. Fuck, I didn't send you anything. I know, you're a bad friend. (laughs) I got you over Christmas. I got you over Christmas. You did. (laughs) This year I'll double up the cookies. Is that like a fair, like to make up for the birthday? I'm just kidding. (laughs) We're all in our mid-30s now. I don't, I think we're beyond the point in life where anyone should feel pressured about birthday and Christmas gifts like yeah oh definitely not if you yeah. feel compelled if you if you think of something do it but you know don't stress yourself out yeah mm-hmm. yeah I'm just gonna door dash something for Pam tomorrow <laughs> one of my friends actually did that for me one time I thought that was kind of a nice easy that would thing make to... me the most happy if yeah. you did even if you didn't I would be fine with it but it's, <laughs> I think that that's a really nice like I've done that before for friends too or like um like um I've door dashed like a cupcake yeah. You know, Aww, especially sweet. if they're like away from home and like are probably not going to celebrate till they get back. I'll just like look to see what bakery looks good on DoorDash and I'll just like send them a little cupcake. That's very cute. I DoorDashed Andrew Duncan one time when I knew he was going to have a That's hell of right. an editing yeah. job. You did. I forget yeah. what it was. I don't know if it was this show, if it was MuggleCast, but there was something fucked up with the audio and it was also really really long it was, was a long like, one yeah that I'm was so uh, sorry yeah. <laughs> and i think it was my fault I too that. i think it was my story that dragged it out but you set a standard with that move and now every time it's a longer episode i'm like where's my DoorDash? <laughs> just waiting for it that's why she hasn't done it again because you can't expect it it just has to come as a surprise yeah 
It's kind of like my holiday cookies. I sent them in October instead of in December. Hey, Siri, please set an alarm for 8 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> okay, that'll be my reminder to DoorDash Pam something. <laughs> I'm going to totally forget for like 30 home. seconds. <laughs> Don't do it. Oh, shit. Really? Okay, cancel I that. I have to go pick up. I have to go pick up my brother from the airport. <laughs> what time's a good time to DoorDash you something tomorrow? Oh my god, probably like I don't know, anytime after two. <laughs> oh, that's late. Okay, I lunch know, or dinner it is then. Okay, <laughs> or you could do it really early in the morning, like at six. <laughs> oh, I'm not gonna make some person deliver something to your house at six. <laughs> and there's nothing around here, so they would want to take that DoorDash anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And that means I have to get up at six to order something. You're already up. We know this about you. Not that early. Not that early. <laughs> I thought uh, that we'll, you got we'll up see. at like five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> oh, God. That was years ago oh, in man. Uh, LA it, in, for hypeable stuff. No. <laughs> oh, well, it is a good birthday week for you. So you got you got the indictment. You got the entire world seemingly burning and Barbie's out this weekend. Oh, Barbenheimer. Yeah, I'll be doing that this weekend for my birthday. <laughs> You're doing both? Hell yeah. I the Oppenheimer, three hours long? No, I'm, thank I'm you. I'm there. I'm down. <laughs> I mean, we're going to split it up, but yeah. Okay. It's gonna Are you fun. doing a double feature, though? Probably a bit like at different hours of the day. Yeah. So like in the morning and then in the evening. Yeah. You mm-hmm. go see one and then you go get lunch or drinks or whatever and then you come yeah. back. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're going to okay. do Barbie second, right? I feel I like think so. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually do know um, somebody in the um, also in the entertainment journalism industry who is championing for Oppenheimer last. But I feel like I need Barbie to go last. Yeah. Because it's, it's such heavy. Oppenheimer is so heavy. I am seeing Barbie this weekend. So looking forward to that. I'm, I am going to pass on Oppenheimer. I'm excited for anyone who's excited about that but i'm just like not into like just because it's christopher nolan i i don't care i don't care are you not into like historical like time period things Eh. you like downton abbey but i guess that's different yeah it's different like obviously i liked his dark knight trilogy but i mean yeah okay interstellar now i'm looking at all his movies (laughs) i'm like oh damn these are all good okay You gotta take it Maybe back. I do need to see Oppenheimer. <laughs> I was gonna say, I mean, I feel like Downton Abbey is messy. That's like a lot of the appeal. And the mm-hmm. uh, uh, story behind Oppenheimer is pretty fucking messy, too. So I feel like you uh, think you would enjoy it, Andrew. You definitely would get up and pee, though. I feel like you're gonna miss like 10 minutes or so around the two hour mark. So maybe check that um, app to see Absolutely. what a good time to yeah. pee is. Well, yeah, and I saw the new Mission Impossible this past weekend, and I I saw it was two hour forty three minute runtime. I threaded about it. I said, I can't believe this. Barbie's saving the world in like an hour forty five. Tom, you should be able to save the world in maybe two hours, well, two and a half hours. Because he's just Ken. He's just Ken. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot harder for him. Tall yeah. Order. yeah. <laughs> but I went into Mission Impossible. Oh, and by the way, it's just part one of two. But anyway. I went into that movie knowing I am going to leave halfway through to take a break, to, to go and pee. It's just stressful to be like, oh, I got to plan my peas so I can make it through the entire Mission Impossible movie or Oppenheimer. Like Barbie, 145. Okay, I will strive to not leave to pee 
But like these other ones, I just got to take the pressure off me because then it's just stressing me out. You just got to <laughs> time it appropriately. Time your intake of liquids so that you're taking a pee like 15 minutes before the movie starts. Yeah. And then limit your fluid intake for the duration of the movie and you'll be fine. Yeah, but I like having a beer or two during the movie, before the movie. Yeah, I mean, fair. Anyway, before we get into our stories today, and we're going to focus on the actor strike and striking and a little bit of AI talk today as well. But first, just wanted to plug that we have a new variety show out. And Laura, do you want to tell people real quick what we did in this one? Yeah, so we were actually inspired by last week's 90s nostalgia conversation about shows and brands that we would love to see adapted either into movies or, you know, more updated shows. And we looked at some classic 1990s commercials. Boy, were they unhinged, honestly. Uh, I just got to say, it still shocks me that Herbal Essences was able to get away with what they got away with in the 90s. <laughs> um, and we also looked at an example of a, a children's toy commercial from the 1960s, and it was Nightmare Fuel. Um, that was actually one of the few variety shows that we've done on camera because we wanted to capture our reactions to these commercials both from a nostalgia standpoint, because we remember some of these and we were able to have a lot of really good um, riffing and conversations about that. But then also to capture just the pure shock (laughs) at some of the stuff that was advertised uh, back in the day. You would never see this stuff advertised in commercials in this way now. No, no. So yeah, that's available on our Patreon, patreon.com slash millennial. We do lots of bonus content throughout the month, every month, including After Dark, which also uh, this week's will have a bit of an AI tie-in as well. We're going to be talking about face filters and what it does to us when we use them. Thanks, everybody who supports us. We couldn't do it without you. So as Andrew teased, we have a striked-themed episode for all of you. Of course, this is inspired by the actor strike, which just kicked off last week. So for anyone who might have missed it, uh, SAG-AFTRA, which is the union that represents all working actors in Hollywood, officially approved a strike against the film and television studios. That happened last Thursday, and its national board actually voted unanimously in favor of striking. So they're not fucking around here. Um, The WGA, which is the Writers Guild, that's the union that represents the people that actually pen the things that we all love so much, also voted to approve a strike back in May. And we talked about it here on this show. If you want to take a listen to that and brush up on what's going on on their side, you can check out episode 914 for that. The WGA strike is still going strong. This is the only, this is only the second time in history that SAG and the WGA have been striking at the same time. So that's significant, significant from a historical standpoint in Hollywood. The last time that this happened was back in 1960. 
So it's been quite a while since both of them have been taking to the picket lines, but they're fighting for some pretty important stuff. Um, And I think one of the things that's really important for everybody to remember is that not everybody that works in Hollywood is an A-list actor that's got, you know, their lives made. So a lot of what is being fought for is also to benefit the, the little guy, people that are just starting out or people that are even like series regulars. Some of the firsthand testaments that have been coming out as a result of this SAG strike and also the writer's strike is really kind of harrowing. Like it's almost like impossible to wrap your head around the fact that some of these people that you probably recognize or whose work you recognize can barely afford to live in Los Angeles where they have to be for work. And same thing with writers too, right? Mm-hmm. We were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. Like you might assume that all writers get paid well in Hollywood, but they don't. They are struggling. Yeah. So like I said, officially the SAG strike began at midnight and this uh, on Friday. And this really left some studios scrambling to fit in last minute appearances because as part of the SAG after strike, no promotion is allowed. So that means like no Comic-Con, which is currently happening now. I believe it kicks off tomorrow. Um, No press junkets, no red carpets, none of that stuff. Uh, Notably, Universal actually jumped through hoops to push the London premiere of Oppenheimer up by one hour. And that was just to ensure that this movie with a cast of really big name stars would be able to you know, walk the red carpet, pose for photos and participate in some interviews before the entire cast decided to walk off together at midnight Pacific Standard Time. So, And one interesting point of clarification I think we should talk about briefly is that you mentioned actors can't appear at San Diego Comic-Con. They aren't going to appear at San Diego Comic-Con because typically when actors go there, That is part of a studio agreement to get those actors to Comic-Con. Think about a big Twilight panel or Hunger Games panel. Lionsgate was orchestrating that appearance at San Diego Comic-Con. The reason I bring this up is there have been a lot of questions around, does this mean actors are no longer going to appear at LeakyCon, Fan Expo 2024 or 2023 in Indianapolis, you know, all those other fan conventions? And the answer is yes, most of those actors still will appear because those negotiations were done outside of the studios. Those were directly with the actor's reps. So um, don't expect them to appear at a convention for the purpose of promoting a specific movie. You won't see that happening. But if they're going to do an autograph line, photos, speak on a panel, uh, you'll still see them doing that. Yeah. So uh, nothing to promote, as Andrew was saying, a, any company that's being struck. So any studio that's being struck. That that means that, like, say if we were famous and part of the SAG, or even if we weren't super famous and we were part of SAG, we could go still, you know, do appearances as ourselves, but we couldn't promote whatever movie was out in theaters or whatever show was about to premiere. So right. that's a good, that's a good point. And there has been a lot of conversation online surrounding what is and isn't allowed. Uh, lots of mixed signals out there too. If you're interested in reading up on um, what you can and can't do to support the SAG after strike or what is and isn't allowed for people that are 
part of the union or want to someday become part of the union, you can head over to their website. They put out a really extensive FAQ as a result to some misinformation that's been going around ever since this was approved. So um, we've talked a lot about the fact that the strike is actively happening right now. But just in case you're not quite sure what uh, SAG is after here, we put together a few highlights for some of the bigger points that they're fighting for. Um, First and foremost, they want to see pay increases that would keep pace with inflation. Very reasonable. I'm sure all of us would want that as well with whatever job we're holding. Uh, They're also looking for higher health and pension contributions, and they want these to be raised to account for 40 years of inflation because this is how old the current rules that are in place are. So um, the production companies, they they pay into these pension plans and these health um, insurance plans. And so they're looking for more compensation on that end. Uh, something they have in common with the WGA is that they're hoping for uh, higher royalties in terms of streaming. Uh, they're asking for 2% of revenue share generated from shows on streaming platforms. And what is being proposed is that they would use a, a third party software to measure just how well a show is doing. So that seems fair to me, you know, but when you look at some streamers like Netflix is notoriously cagey with numbers. So, of course, they don't want people to know how well a Mm -hmm. show is doing. And now it's all kind of starting to make sense why, you know, it's not just so that we are not up in arms about them canceling things. It's also probably so that they don't have to pay out more royalties than they have been. Yeah. And we've heard from a couple actors over the years that even like actors or directors, the people on the inside who made the darn things do not know how well these things are doing, which is outrageous to me. Like, I can't imagine being a director or a creator of a show that exclusively debuts on Netflix and you have no idea how many people are watching. That would be like a part of my agreement. I guess it's just not. And you have to bend to Netflix's demands there. But that would drive me nuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess if the money's good, they don't care. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially when you start, you know, talking about writers and, you know, individual episode directors and things like that. They've started sharing their um, their checks and the amount of money that people are making, you know, in terms of their residuals is it's pennies comparative to the total revenue that these products are bringing in. Yeah, so I'm really it's, glad it's you really you brought terrible. that up. I think all of us tuned into at least part, if not all, of Netflix's Orange is the New Black. That was a mm-hmm, huge, mm-hmm. successful show for them. In a lot of ways, Like that sets the bar for what they would want all of their originals to do. They want shows that can be Emmys contenders, Golden Globe contenders, uh, bring in the accolades. But it seems like the way they're treating the talent that gets those shows there is really messed up. Uh, Kimiko Glenn, who uh, you guys all might remember, I think she played uh, the character Soso. I think that was the name of her character. She was on the show for quite a while, wasn't an original um, cast member, but still somebody that you would notably recognize from the series. She posted a TikTok showing that she only made $27 and 30 cents in foreign royalties this past quarter. And just mm. looking at, you know, the way she scans through 
just how many episodes it took for her to make that much money is insane. And she's posted some follow-up TikToks since then. So if you're interested in hearing more about, you know, what she has to say on that regard, I would head over to TikTok and check out. I think she made like three videos on it. So um, another example that I found over on TikTok was from Reservation Dogs and Rutherford Falls actress Janice uh, Schmeeding. She tweeted, I put I pull in three cents each quarter for unlimited worldwide streams on FX, Hulu, Disney and Iger still yachting. And that was in relation to (laughs) Reservation Dogs, which is also one of those shows that has gotten a lot of buzz. And her her compensation for Rutherford Falls, where she plays a larger role as far as royalties go, is not much better. I think um, in the pace of if I remember correctly, she was only pulling in about thirty three dollars for the quarter. Mm. Holy shit. And the request for a two percent revenue share has been rejected by the AMPTP. I saw a side-by-side comparison of what SAG-AFTRA is proposing and what AMTP has countered, and they just flatly rejected it. Nope. Nope. I can't say I'm surprised that the studios are flatly rejecting it because they are having a hard time making money off of streaming. They're spending tons of money investing in these shows, getting making these shows and they have no room to start paying out the actors, but that's on them. They need to figure out a better business model. And of course, it's going to trickle down to us. You think $19.99 a month for Netflix is expensive? Mm-hmm. Wait till we're paying $30 a month for Netflix. And that's the thing. Like, I will not be convinced at all that if even if, you know, the actors were to get this deal, uh, this 2%. I think that 2% just gets passed on to the consumers. I don't think mm-hmm. that any of these CEOs are going to take a hit to their bottom line to support this, um, which is it's something to be frustrated by as a consumer, too. Yeah. God forbid yeah. they take a, a bonus cut off of their millions. Right? What is it? Bob Bob Iger's salary is like $24 million or something like that. And David Zaslav's over at WB is even larger. Yeah. And I believe that um, the CEOs of Netflix make $30 million. It's crazy. And, by the way, a little aside really quick. I have HBO Max, Max, excuse me, with ads now. It's fine. It's fine. Speaking of pee breaks... It's a nice way to get up for a second and go pee during these little commercial breaks. So I might eventually switch to that for Netflix and my Disney Plus subscription that I got almost four years ago now is finally about to expire. So I'll probably switch to the ad version at Disney Plus, too, because I don't I barely use that. The only good thing is uh, with this whole streaming situation right now is that they are putting together these ad plans so you can pay less so long as you're willing to deal with the advertising. And so far, mm-hmm. I'm surprised to find myself saying, I don't mind ads. Kicking it yeah. old school with ads. And they're shorter than the commercial breaks on TV. So you can't they really complain, now. right? For now, though, they're going to slowly now. start turning up that knob and we're <laughs> going to be dealing with a good 20 minutes of commercials per hour before long. It's all going full circle. We've gone it back is. to, mm-hmm. you know, appointment television that the streamers are adopting and they're putting commercials in. It's it's like it's 2000 again. Yeah. Yeah. 
oh, it's it's weird. It's like the cable model was actually pretty good mm-hmm. for the cable companies. Right. It was sustainable so long as people didn't go to streaming. Well, we could probably sit here for the whole episode and talk about uh, everything that SAG is proposing, which is really not anything too extreme. But to wrap this all up, I wanted to bring up one other point that has been getting a lot of traction at a variety of news outlets. And that is the um, the regulation that they're asking for surrounding AI. This is something that a lot of different industries are worried about. And so rightly so, uh, SAG-AFTRA is as well. Um, all that they're trying to ensure is that any use of a performer's likeness is done with consent and is compensated fairly. And I think that Andrew had a couple of points here that he wanted to talk us through with regards to this. Yeah, well, mainly the details around what the AMPTP is proposing in regards to AI. SAG-AFTRA says that the AMPTP proposed that our background actors should be able to be scanned, get paid for one day's pay, and their company should own that scan, their image, their likeness, and to be able to use it for the rest of eternity in any project they want with no consent and no compensation. Hmm. That's bad. Yeah. this This is only background actors, but this would just be a first step. Before they start getting some of these other actors on board. I mean, that's an outrageous ask. It really is. I mean, it seems like if they want to use AI in this way to sort of make providing background characters in a more easy way and in a cheaper way, I I guess that's fine. But why not pay these people a certain amount per use of their likeness. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that that would be something that would be a lot more uh, negotiable. But one other point that I saw brought up with regards to this is like, obviously, yes, compensation is key. But um, I guess, you know, when you're an actor that's doing background work, a lot of these people are, are trying to get up to more regular work or series yeah. regular work or starring role work. And a lot of, you know, that time spent on set allows them to learn the ropes of the other side mm-hmm. of the business. It's good for networking. It's good. It's a good way to get your foot in the door. And so if you're just on set for one day, as opposed to 30, it's yeah. less of an opportunity for you to really take advantage of being in that atmosphere. And that's a point that I had not really thought about until I saw someone bring it up. And so I think in that regard, too, it makes sense why, you know, especially background actors wouldn't want this to happen. Yeah, it's a really good point. I didn't think about it that way. And we've been seeing concerns over AI amongst other unions as well, thinking about the media. And we're going to address that a little later in today's episode. Uh, Writers don't want to be replaced by AI, of course. And so far, studios, media publications are balking at that because they see dollar signs and the amount of money they'll be able to save by using AI. So on the other side, you have, as Andrew pointed out, the AMPTP stands for the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. So they represent all of the studios. They put out a statement basically saying that they offered 
quote, historic pay and residual increases, substantially higher caps on pension and health contributions, and groundbreaking AI proposals that protects actors' digital likeness. And then, because, you know, I guess they wanted to pour salts in open wounds, they also added that, quote, the union has regrettably chosen a path which will lead to financial hardship for countless thousands of people who depend on the industry. So basically, they're saying that it's sag fault that people are going to lose money. Mm-hmm. Did y'all see Ron Perlman's <laughs> yes. Yes. in response to this? Oh, my God. It was threatening. We should play mm-hmm. it real quick. It was really we good. Should. I know yeah. we threw it in Slack. Um, how about first, do you want to set up this next clip and while Yeah, yeah. I just um to to wrap up like this stuff before we get to the Ron Perlman clip, um, I wanted to shout out uh Fran Drescher, who many of us will know from her work on the nanny. She's also the SAG president, and her speech when they announced the strike was so impassioned. And we have a clip of that here right now for all of you to listen to. I cannot believe it, how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history. We stand in solidarity, in unprecedented unity. Our union and our sister unions and the unions around the world are standing by us because at some point the jig is up. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. This is a moment of history. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines and big business. Who cares more about Wall Street than you and your family? She's good. She mm-hmm. can deliver a message. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this Ron Perlman clip, a little context first. There is this report in Deadline about a week ago, big Hollywood trade publication. They were talking to studio execs. And one of the studio execs who went unnamed, uh, but Deadline said other execs around Hollywood are saying this too, said their strategy right now is to just wait until actors, writers, etc. can no longer afford to pay their rents, their mortgages, their bills, etc. Basically, wait until they are so desperate to be making money again that they're willing to return to the negotiating table and give in to the demands of the studios. And of course, that's sickening. Mm-hmm. And so Ron Perlman <laughs> goes and posts this, I guess, on Twitter or tick. It looks like TikTok. And um, this is this is great. Yeah, this, this is a bulky guy, badass actor. And uh, here's his message to studios. The motherfucker who said we're going to keep this thing going until people start losing their houses and their apartments. Listen to me, motherfucker. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. Some of it is financial. Some of it is karma. And some of it is just figuring out who the fuck said that. And we know who said that. And where he fucking lives. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. You wish that on people. You wish that families starve 
while you're making 27 fucking million dollars a year for creating nothing? Be careful, motherfucker. Be really careful. Because that's the kind of shit that stirs shit up. Peace out. I love the piece out at the end too. Just, oh, I know. there's so much. And the birds I chirping know. in the background. <laughs> yeah. And there's a plane going overhead, but at first you're like, is that like a sound effect he added for dramatic effect? Like, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want Ron Perlman mad at me either. Oh man. Ron Perlman is sending the drone to Bob Iger's <laughs> house. This is my Andrew's crying moment of the episode. <laughs> It's not but funny, good for but him, it is. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. But but good for him. More more actors with uh, a, a big following like him should be coming out and saying something about mm-hmm. the strike and the comments like the one being reported in Deadline. Glad to see him all worked up over that. Yeah. I mean, it really does feel like a historical turning point in terms of the degree of unity that there is between um, SAG and WGA at this point. And it, I know we're going to talk about this here in a few moments, but it's interesting to see how something happening on this large scale that is so public and is coming from a lot of really heavily recognizable famous people. It's interesting to think about what impact that could have on other industries that are maybe trying to do something similar in terms of striking or unionizing. So Pam did mention a strike theme on today's episode, and I thought this would be a good opportunity to warn people and make people aware that there are a couple other strikes that might be happening, one in a few months, one very soon, that can affect a lot of people here in America and really around the world. The one happening sooner is the UPS one. This one's deadline is actually approaching very soon. It's August 1st, just about two weeks away, a little less than that. UPS, major, major delivery company in the United States and around the world. It is vital for consumers and business owners. In fact, um, it is 30% of the parcel delivery market by revenue. FedEx is 33%. USPS is 17%. Amazon is 12%. And that gives you a sense of just how big UPS is. They are the biggest. FedEx actually told employees that no one carrier could, could absorb all of UPS's volume. So if UPS workers strike then we're going to have major delivery problems in this country. And I've been reading that business owners are already beginning to ship with others in case this UPS strike does pan out. Negotiators actually have netted some wins so far, though. This is insane. I did not know this. UPS has agreed to install AC systems in new vans beginning January 1st, 2024, but not in the old ones. I guess they can't be retrofit. However, old ones will get fans, just regular fans, heat shields on the bottom to prevent the heat from coming up from the asphalt, and air induction systems. And the new vans with the AC will be sent to the hottest areas first. So probably like Vegas, Phoenix, Phoenix, and other areas in the Southwest to begin with. And I guess the South in general. But I, did you guys know that UPS vans don't have AC? That's no, wild. but I, I feel like it makes sense because they don't even have doors. I always thought like 
They're just letting the AC blow all the time. But then it wouldn't even like, I mean, I guess it could blow in your face, but it's it's like yeah. they probably I'm not even surprised. Like maybe I'm a sh- little shocked, but not surprised that UPS as a company would be cheap enough to say like, well, they got to keep their doors open. So like we shouldn't spring, spring for extra stuff like AC because it's just yeah. going to like eat up gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I just honestly never thought about it. And that makes me feel kind of shitty because, you know, how often have we all had a UPS person deliver something to us? And by the way, they're always super nice. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's a couple of TikTok accounts of UPS drivers who tape themselves interacting with people's dogs like they pull up in the van (laughs) and dogs will like come up and get up in the van to say or get up in the truck to say hey to them um yeah i mean it's crazy to think that there's no uh no climate control whatsoever given that they're effectively driving around in an open truck they're exposed to the elements maybe that's why they have them in shorts yeah, like allowed to. Yeah, I think instead of like long pants because they they might overheat. But it's kind of ridiculous that like I, I guess like the the workaround to heat is just like well we'll just give you some shorts to wear. Yeah, you know that doesn't solve an issue. So I was looking around to see what about the other carriers. FedEx vans are equipped with AC, but that it's a little complicated because the FedEx ones do, but then they also lease a bunch of vehicles and those are mixed in terms of whether or not they have AC. USPS mail trucks, those iconic ones we see, do not, but they are working on getting new trucks and I think they are going to have AC. I vaguely remember talking about this on the show. Yeah, they're a getting a back. revamp, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember us talking about that too. Because also something we didn't know at the time, or at least I didn't know, was that a lot of these vans, these USPS vans, have exploded. They've get, they've got bad yeah. engines in them, and they're getting older and older. They they really need new ones. So, so anyway, again, UPS is finally going to start putting AC in their trucks, and it was a bummer to see that hadn't been the case. Obviously, they're working out other issues. Again, this strike is potentially about two weeks away, and it could be a very big deal. And the strike that is further away but could happen is one amongst the Southwest Pilots Labor Union. They recently asked to be released from federal mediation for a new contract, contract which lays the groundwork for a potential strike. The union and the airline have been unable to come up with agreements on pay, work rules, and other aspects. Pilot strikes are extremely rare. The last major one was a Spirit Airlines pilot strike in 2010. Obviously, a lot of people use and love Southwest. We need it in this country. It's a very important airline, not just from a transportation perspective, but a price one as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see if that one happens, but that's still in the future. I don't know how unified the Southwest pilots are. That's always the big question with strikes or various types of, you know, working protests is what's the level of unity you have? Because if you have some of the employees who, you know, either aren't members of a union, and I don't know if Southwest pilots are required to be in a union, some industries do have that requirement. Um, 
But if you're not a unionized employee and you're willing to continue working, that if you get enough numbers on that side of things, it can also be the tipping point to make a strike unsuccessful. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens. We are going to talk more about strikes in a moment, how strikes do benefits. We will take a quick break first and we'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Continuing on this theme of strikes, um, let's chat about what strikes and labor unions and, and the labor movement have done for workers and also look at some examples of um, historical strikes that you know have worked, haven't worked kind of worked. Um, But let's kind of review some of the things that we all have in our working lives as a result of strikes and labor unions. It's where the 40-hour work week came from. It's where we got higher wages, employer-provided health care and retirement benefits, safer working conditions, of course. Um, You know, if we look back to the start of the Industrial Revolution, um, I think we can all kind of imagine what working conditions were like for people at that point. It was 15-hour days in literally unsafe working conditions, often factories. And, um, you know, striking in labor unions really implemented a lot of safety measures and um, health measures in terms of the amount of time that you're working around many industries of work. It's where we also got vacation and paid sick time. Pretty important. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that we take for granted, but these were hard won workers' rights. They were fought for for a very long time. And You know, there are still some industries and some types of work, you know, particularly if you're part time where you don't get paid sick time still. And I think these are things that labor unions are still trying to close the gap on. Something else that we got from labor unions, weekends. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this didn't used to be a thing. Also, the ending of child labor was a big one, although some states like Iowa are trying to bring it back, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Great. And then, of course, um, the Family Medical Leave Act, otherwise known as FMLA. It's a huge one. Mm -hmm. And there's more even than this. And strikes and labor unions have brought, you know, workers' rights to the forefront, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. Not all of these things even came out of the U.S. The 40-hour work week, I think, actually came out of Australia, um, which was something interesting that I learned when I was reading up on this. 
and hopefully strikes. Uh, I'll talk about America briefly, specifically. Hopefully, strikes and labor unions continue to push these things further in the decades ahead because you look at how workers are treated in many countries overseas and there's uh, shorter work weeks in some cases, of course, higher wages, um, a lot more vacation and paid sick leave. I mean, that's a big one. We look at in other countries, we see some of our European friends on vacation for weeks and months every year. And it's like, wow, what a life that must be. Here in America, we're very limited in our vacation time. And there's an expectation that you need to be working a lot of the time. Yeah, 100%. Well, we can look at some examples of strikes. Um, We may not get through all of these, but I picked a few for us to look at um, that are just, I think, really interesting from a historical perspective. Andrew, since you were just talking about UPS, I wanted to quickly remind people that Um, UPS workers actually struck back in 1997. So this might be a good barometer for uh, predicting what we might expect in the upcoming UPS worker strike. Um, So back in 1997, 185,000 UPS workers went on strike for 15 days, just 15 days, but it disrupted worldwide package delivery. I think you had mentioned that they account for around 30% of all parcel delivery. Um, So think about that on a global scale. It's going to be a huge pain in the ass. And trying to disperse that volume to other postal carriers is just going to create and present delays, even if the strike is only you know, as short as 15 days. 15 days doesn't sound like a long time, but in the world of trying to ship parcels all over the world uh, and seeing a 30% interruption in items, you know, being able to be shipped and reaching their destinations within a reasonable period of time, 15 days is a long time. Packages are delivered, of course, every day. And that would create a huge backlog. And just kind of a related stat, food stores only have three to four days of food at any given time. If deliveries of food just stopped, we would have food available to to us for three to four days. That's a terrifying figure. Mm -hmm. And it, it we really take it for granted how well the delivery system works overall. I'm not talking about UPS impacting food delivery, but it's just a reminder of how short the turnaround times are. It just speaks to the devastating effects that can occur when you start pulling apart the delivery systems Mm -hmm. in this country and around the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on that note, think about um, all of the truck drivers who were protesting um, and refusing to drive to Florida in the wake of, you know, some of the draconian anti-immigrant legislation that um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed that went into effect earlier this month. Um, There were a number of truck drivers, a lot of them of Mexican or Latin descent, who were refusing to drive their trucks down to Florida, which impacted the delivery chain of groceries and other necessary items. So, I mean, the the domino effect is real. 
But to give an idea of what UPS workers got out of their 1997 strike, um, it was pretty successful for them. They got uh, increased starting pay. They had 10,000 part-time positions converted to full-time positions. They had uh, increases in contributions to their benefits and pension plans, as well as a guarantee that full-time openings would be filled by current part-time employees instead of going external to fill those positions. Yeah, so it it was a pretty successful one. And a lot of that, um, you know, goes back to what I was talking about earlier, which is the level of unity and the level of impact that it's having on people who aren't necessarily these workers, right? It gets really complicated when you don't have unity amongst the workforce to carry out the strike, but also when the impact on the rest of the general population isn't readily apparent or easily felt by people. This is an obvious one. We're all going to be impacted if UPS workers strike. Something that I thought was an interesting example of a failed strike. This was such an interesting story to read up on. Um, it was the air traffic controllers walkout of 1981. Um, so in this one, 12,000 members of the professional air traffic controllers organization walked out, which led to 7,000 flights being canceled at the height of summer travel. I think we can all understand the pain point that, you know, travelers would feel as a result of this. Um, In response to this, President Ronald Reagan threatened to fire any air traffic controllers who did not return to work within 48 hours. And when, when they didn't, he did deliver on that promise. He also barred any of these air traffic controllers from ever working for the FAA again. Um, the, the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO, um, sort of in, in advance of this strike, had called for reduced work weeks and $10,000 raises across the board. This would have been to the tune of $770 million, to which the FAA offered just $40 million in raises across the board. So they were nowhere close to what PATCO was looking for. But ultimately, the FAA was able to do this um, for a few reasons. And those reasons also amounted to, you know, kind of why this strike failed. There was this lack of compromise between PATCO and the FAA. They were nowhere close to each other. There were also a number of non-unionized air traffic controllers who were stepping up to fill the gap. So when these 12,000 members stopped showing up to work there were a few thousand others who were putting in overtime and stepping in to fill the gap, which is what I was talking about earlier related to the need for unity amongst employees in order for something like this to be truly impactful. It also does not sound safe for others to be stepping in and be overworked when you're controlling the direction of planes and managing them in the air. A hundred percent. And it's such a double-edged sword because like you you definitely don't want that. You don't want people stepping in and being overworked, doing that kind of work. 
um, because one small mistake is catastrophic as an air traffic controller. You also want these people to be well compensated. Like, I want the person who is providing air traffic control to the plane that I'm on to be making fucking bank. (laughs) I want that person to be flush with cash. Yeah, just like pilots, too. And they are paid very well. Um, There actually is. There was a report just a month ago, actually. Critical U.S. air traffic control facilities have faced serious staffing shortages. 77% of critical air traffic control facilities are staffed below the FAA's 85% threshold. Why would anybody want to get into this profession if like, I'm sure the rumor is that you're overworked and underpaid, you know? So what is the incentive there? I'm assuming that not much has changed since they tried to strike in 1981. But the, the irony is really that they were fighting for reduced work weeks and yet they, you know, there were people out there who probably need to make money, understandably, that just decided to be overworked instead. To, you know, that point and the point that Andrew just brought up a few moments ago, Liza raised something really good in the Discord. Um, She said, my dad was just wondering if this is why there are so many flight issues this summer. All of those air traffic controllers hired in 1980 are probably all retiring now at once if they haven't already. That's a really good point. You know, we know a lot of the issues with air travel this summer have been due to reduced flight staff. Um, I flew recently and on both legs of my flight, we had to sit there and wait for a pilot. Like they didn't have a pilot for either of these flights. And we had to sit there at the gate waiting on a pilot to land another plane and come running across the airport (laughs) to take care of us. You don't want that. You don't want that. (laughs) No, it definitely, you know, I wasn't super jazzed about it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it was fine. The really interesting thing about this case with the air traffic controllers walk out in 1981 is that it presented a very negative turning point for striking. Um, This was the first um, it was the first time and it's ultimately what made it acceptable to fire striking employees So this provides a turning point in the culture of striking and the way that employers view striking. So as a result of this, and the literal president of the United States firing these people for being on strike, yearly strikes dropped from around 300 a year to just 30 a year. It's why when you look back through the pages of history, it seems like There were so many more strikes than we see today. That's in part because conditions, at least here in the U.S., have improved quite a bit. Um, You know, we're definitely not going to sit here and say that um, there aren't places that have it worse because there definitely are. There's still progress that needs to be made. But the other part of it is moments like this where there was such a massive failure as a result of the lack of coordination. Um, the lack of compromise and ultimately the leader of the executive branch stepping up and saying you can fire workers who are on strike. Always comes back to Reagan whenever you want to think about like, I know 
where the economy went wrong, where the housing crisis originated from. Homophobia. Yeah, it really does. It's kind of like incredible how much you can trace back to Ronald Reagan's. um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Reaganomics, man. It's crazy. Still still fucking us to this day. Yeah. Um, By the way, there is a TikTok account that comes up in my algorithm every now and then. And it always gives me a chuckle because they post a daily TikTok with like a picture of Ronald Reagan and like EDM music in the background. (laughs) And it just says, congratulations, Ronald Reagan is still dead. (laughs) Or like today, (laughs) Ronald Reagan is still dead. (laughs) I thought that we could also, you know, talk about the first United Auto Workers sit in. This was in 1936. It's another really interesting case. Um, This was the first major labor dispute in the U.S. auto industry. And I know that we've seen at least one or two others in our lifetimes. But it's interesting to kind of look back at the first major one. This happened as a result of three workers holding a sit-in strike in response to hundreds of deaths in Michigan auto plants due to a heat wave and difficult working conditions in the space of a month. It was one month where all of this happened. Um, Those three workers holding the sit-in were fired, and this triggered a sit-down protest of 700 workers, which resulted in the three original protesters being rehired. This momentum kind of led to a domino effect of workers across auto plants holding sit-ins and taking over multiple plants. The strikers remained in these plants like they didn't go home. Their communities were literally bringing them food (laughs) to sustain them while they were there. And they stayed in these plants playing games, giving lectures, even organizing concerts. Um, This went on for 44 days, which... Maybe it doesn't sound like a long time, but imagine living in an auto plant for 44 days. Um, And ultimately, as a result of this, as a result of the unity amongst these employees and the pressure and the lost productivity, GM agreed to a $25 million wage increase for these workers. And this was in 1936. So that's significant. Yeah. It's interesting. I've seen a couple people say, look at all these um, strikes that have been happening recently. SAG, Writers Guild, potentially this UPS one. There's been a couple others we haven't spoken about today. Maybe there is a movement right now, if we're optimistic, amongst workers. Maybe some of these are motivating others to walk out. We've seen strikes within individual Starbucks, haven't we? When the the workers are walking out because they they do successfully unionize and then they walk out. I might be wrong on that, so I'll just cut this out. No, you're but, no, you're right. Some Starbucks stores have unionized. Um, it's just dependent on the store. Some of them are unionized. Yeah. Some of them aren't. <laughs> yeah. So my point is, maybe there is a movement slowly forming, and this is what I'm talking about. A broader movement slowly forming. And this is what I'm talking about, which is like people are encouraging others. There needs to be more strikes. And hopefully these ones that people are seeing are motivating others. Yeah, I think part of it, too, is just like the what's going on economically in this country is not really built to help middle class or lower class. And with 
the recession and inflation, it just kind of, well, I guess we're not technically in a recession yet, but we basically are, you know, it just like all of that, I think kind of like amounts to people feeling overworked, underpaid, and then it's just expensive to live in this country. It's so expensive to live and it's getting more expensive by the day. And I, I think that that's probably adding to the animosity that people are feeling. And I've said it before. I'll say it again. You can never get ahead in this country. You get yeah. a raise. Yay. Oh, but your rent's going up. Oh, the electric bill's going up. Oh, you're, uh, you, you can't afford your car anymore either. Oh, gas is going up. It's like you never can get ahead in this country. And that's how it's set up. It's set up. Mm-hmm. We're always under the thumb. Yeah. But they yeah. want us to believe that we can. Like, America still touts the idea of how anyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, can strive for the American dream. And yes, technically anyone can, but it's getting harder to get, you know, a larger piece of that pie as a result of what you were saying with just the fact that like it's hard to get ahead. And then the yeah. constant gaslighting. Oh, you could buy a house. You're just if not you working got hard off enough. Your ass, yeah. Mm-hmm. And worked a fourth job. And bought less avocado to blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And it really gaslights people into being anti-union. I mean, I think during our lifetimes, we've all seen a lot of anti-union sentiment. Um, Even, you know, I'm glad, Andrew, that you brought up Starbucks. Um, Starbucks has been union busting like crazy. They're trying to make it extremely uncomfortable for employees who are interested in unionizing. Um, there have been other examples historically of companies doing this. I mean, literally having mem- anti-union members of their staff um, well, sort of if- like rat out people who are considering forming or joining a union. It's very disturbing. Another current example is Apple, Apple retail. Those retail workers want to unionize. And uh, I think a couple have successfully. But Apple corporate is trying to union bust. They are 100%, which is crazy because we think about companies like Apple and Starbucks as being, quote, progressive companies. But, you know... Only so far as it doesn't impact their bottom line. And I think that's what's so galling to people is we're coming out the other side of a pandemic, depending on who you ask, because the reality is COVID didn't go anywhere. We've just learned to live with it, where these corporations saw massive profits and yet they're sitting here poor mouthing to us talking about how they don't have, um, you know, the finances to support some of these requests that are coming from employees. Meanwhile, they're paying their CEOs millions of dollars a year. They're ending up with millions of dollars in bonuses all the time. You're telling me that these people can't take a 2% cut in that to help you know, people at the bottom of the chain fucking pay their rent. I know. I it's know. It's ridiculous. 
Yeah. Um, we've got some other examples that we can include links to in the show notes. I would definitely recommend reading up on them. I know that we need to move on to our AI discussion, but um, definitely check out our links to the Memphis sanitation workers strike, um, the postal worker strike in 1970, as well as the Hornell, Minnesota meat packers strike of 1986. Um, and Recently, a new General Motors worker strike in 2019. Um, so we'll mm. include links to those in the show notes. People have the power. Yeah. Just got to unify. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, you got to be on the same page. <laughs> well, we will talk a little about AI in a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So to wrap up today's episode, since we've touched on AI a couple times today, I wanted to update everyone on some pretty funny developments concerning media outlets trying and failing to replace human writers with AI bots to write their content. So the main one I wanted to talk about today was G.O. Media. They own sites like Gizmodo, AV Club, Jezebel, io9, Kotaku. And they announced recently that they would start testing AI written content. And this announcement, by the way, came just a few days after laying off several writers. So it was a really bad look, especially in terms of timing. The AI articles were simply published with a byline with an author named Gizmodo Bot. And one of the first articles published and written by the bot was put up on io9. It went really badly. And we have a couple of screenshots. The article was a chronological list of Star Wars movies and TV shows. You go and look at this list, it's an s- extremely simple list. It's the title the year, and then a very small description of each movie or TV show. It was just one sentence long, it looks like, for each title. And they put the releases out of order. It goes from 2017 to 2019 to 2008 to 2014. (laughs) And this got published. This is one of their first AI written articles. So it was very embarrassing. The deputy editor of io9 quickly spoke out about this. They said, hello. Their name was James Whitbrook. Hello, as you may have seen today, an AI-generated article appeared on io9. I was informed approximately 10 minutes beforehand, and no one at io9 played a part in its editing or publication. And then James sent off a strongly worded email to his uh, seniors at uh, GeoMedia and also a list of corrections for that particular article. To replace a writer with a bot is bad enough, but to not ask someone to fact check it, they just generated it in, let's say, ChatGPT, copy and paste it, and press publish. Because that was a very glaring error to suddenly jump back to 2008, then forward again. Yeah. It's so jarring. Um how much trust I think people are placing in these AI tools. And don't get me wrong, these can be amazing tools for helping you maybe create a template for that article that you want to put together, but you still need human intervention here because AI will be confidently wrong. (laughs) 
Sometimes yes. you'll ask it a question and it will sound so confident and official and legitimate and be dead wrong. At the very least, they should have had an editor look this over. And it answers so quick. It gives you an answer so quick. You just think to yourself, how could it be wrong? And knew that so fast. It's always mm-hmm. hilarious on Jeopardy when somebody answers a question really fast. And <laughs> Ken Jennings or Mayim goes, no. Yeah. <laughs> I mentioned Geo Media. Their editorial director, Meryl Brown, said, AI content is absolutely a thing we want to do more of, even following the Star Wars blunder right out of the gate. Brown also told Vox they will run the content by editors going forward. So at least there's that. But there's really no stopping this train. This content is so cheap for them to produce. And the other thing is, you might be asking, why would they publish a list of the release dates of Star Wars titles? People do Google for that stuff. Mm -hmm. We were doing it all the time on Hypeable. There's still articles, including a Taylor Swift album order article on Hypeable that still does really good numbers. And it hasn't been updated in years. And for some reason, it's sitting on like page one of Google. So media outlets are just going to start generating all of these simple types of articles that they think don't need to be written by humans, throwing them up on their site. And crossing their fingers, you know, doing a little SEO work and crossing their fingers, hoping that Google's going to rank this content until Google maybe can start identifying which content is written by a human and which isn't. But that could be a long way off because obviously one fascinating part of all this AI written content is that it is written like a human or at least a human with a decent enough set of writing skills. You're right. From like an SEO standpoint. It just kind of feels like, why wouldn't you do this? I think that you and I could both speak to how hard it is to play the SEO game um, in terms of like what Google decides gets the green light on that front. You could have like the best article in the world that caters to everything, but Google will knock you for stupid shit like the title of a show. Really good example of this, it's like one that still haunts me, is Disney Plus's High School Musical, the musical, the series. <laughs> Terrible title for SEO. It's obviously <laughs> the title of a show that has done really well for Disney Plus. As far as like just the Google bot that runs through SEO is concerned, it has too many thes in there and it's too long. So like that's going to ding you for SEO. And that's like not anything that you did wrong on your own. It's just like what the algorithm says is correct. Yeah. So, you know, if you have a tool like chat, chat GPT can, that can basically like ensure that you're ticking all those boxes, it's going to make your post shoot up to the top of Google. I mean, like I, I get why that's attractive, but I don't think that it's really going to produce much of substance, you know, because a lot of what um, SEO is looking for isn't, you know, always substantial. Like if you're just putting together a list of, you know, to your point, the order in which you should watch the Star Wars movies, there's no real like editorial content happening there. But if you assigned that to a human that was, you know, really passionate about the thing, then maybe they could add a little nuance and make it something that's a bit more of an enjoyable read. I guess the 
senior leadership figures, there's no reason to bother editorializing this stuff because people are just trying to come in for a quick list. And to some extent, they're not wrong, but this erodes trust between longtime readers of particular brands, let's say io9, um, and and io9. It's they they want to go there for articles written by certain people. You build up relationships, parasocial relationships, mm-hmm. uh, with the writers at sites. You know, we follow columnists podcasters vloggers you you'll be, you you want to see what those people have to say their opinions stuff that the ai bots can never can never replicate but then on the other hand there's that i guess you could say a wider audience out there that doesn't give a shit who's who at at what publication they just want to get in for a trailer a little bit of info the release date of the next season of high school, the musical, the the, 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 the series, whatever, and and get out. And that's it. Also wanted to touch real quickly on CNET and their sister site, Bankrate, because they, they've been doing SEO clickbait crap for a while, but they started getting into the AI game too recently. And uh, they had gotten in trouble for posting inaccurate AI content. They had stopped after the backlash, after the errors were pointed out, but they started up again. Oh, and guess what? The articles are still loaded with mistakes. So it's not going well for them either. And really, it's just stunning that like they still can't fact check these articles. For example, this bank rate article claimed that Boulder, Colorado's median home price is $1.75 million. In reality, according to Redfin data, bank rate sites, the actual figure is more than a quarter million dollars lower. So they're sharing just a lot of incorrect data. Uh, Very critical financial figures are just wrong in these articles. And no human's going to bother fact-checking all this stuff Mm because it's a lot to fact-check after a bot writes it. I would say the other thing is too is like, first of all, yes, like there is always going to be people that just believe something because it popped up on Google as the first thing when they searched for something. But then on the other hand, you have um, this mistrust of the media and journalists that has been brewing for quite some time now. A lot of that to do with um, inaccuracies in reporting. And so then if you're just handing the reins over to an AI bot, assuming that they're going to get it right because it's a machine that can't make mistakes. Like this is proof that that's not the case. Whereas if you still had a human doing this job, it's like, yes, there's still room for error, but at least then you're going to have somebody that's like questioning things, you know, and double checking the information instead of just a bot that like only believes that it's right and doesn't believe that there's room for error. This is such an important distinction that a lot of people aren't seeing yet, whether it's media conglomerate brass or just like people who become entranced by the promise of AI. An example of this is there's some AI podcasting tools Adobe has a pretty popular one right now called Adobe Podcast, and you magically drop a file into it and it cleans up the audio. Oh, what a beautiful world. But then you start using it and you actually start listening to it and you hear errors and it sounds like crap in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And it's like 
this is not the future anytime soon. Yes, it can save you a few minutes, but you need that human touch sometimes. Yeah. Yes, there's AI podcast editing tools that can help you take out ums in a podcast, but the cuts around the um sound like shit. And people have been talking to me about this, like, oh, we started using the editor in Riverside and and uh, it's it's been really helpful. I'm thinking to myself, really? Because I've tried it and it sounds awful. Yeah. <laughs> and and you need a human working on this type of stuff. So me personally, like I'm not concerned about the bots replacing me as an editor anytime soon because these still these things have a long way to go. And some AI tools for like audio and video production have been around for a while, a while. And they're still not good. So the stuff always needs a human involved. Period. I was was also going to say like a really good rudimentary example is like if you want to edit a photo in your phone, right? There's an auto enhance feature that will self adjust the exposure, the contrast, the warm and cool tones, like every aspect of the photo. It will do it for you based on like what it thinks the photo needs. But how many times do you all actually like like the results of that? Because I know I don't. Like yeah, I'll click right. that button. Yeah. It always looks like shit. I'd rather just do it myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. So like. Right. Because right before your finger lands on that button, you have like kind of your set of hopes that you want the button to carry through. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> then you see it process and it's like, this is not what I imagined. And right. then you do it yourself. Yeah, I I think a lot of it comes back to people who people for whom AI is this novel thing that maybe they haven't put a lot of thought into or they don't realize how much they've already interacted with AI. That being a perfect example, the auto enhancing of photos and for people like this, AI is like wizardry. It's like magic. And because they think of it that way, they're totally missing all of the deficiencies that exist with it. Yes, it is an incredible tool that you can use to help streamline things, maybe help you work a little faster on something, or at least give you a good starting point. But you're still going to have to put in the time to make sure that the work is correct. And I think yeah. that's the piece that people are missing about AI. And I also know a couple of people who become so obsessed with automating things to oh, save themselves yeah. time that they end up spending more time trying to automate and then fix the automation, double checking the work when you could have just done it yourself originally and it would have been done. It would have been done great the first time. Those people crack me up. Yeah. They think they're setting themselves up for like an amazing amount of productivity and they aren't productive at all. Yeah. The whole idea of automation for automation's sake is a fad that I really hope passes us by. There are a lot of ways in which automation will benefit us and we should figure out how to do it right. But that doesn't mean that we have to do it for fucking everything. (laughs) My God. Like jumping back to the podcast example real quick, I have tools to automate leveling the audio. They work fabulously. But then there's other tools to improve audio in other ways that are supposed to do it automatically and it just does not work well. So mm-hmm. it's just finding that right balance, I suppose. But always have a human involved. 
just to wrap this up, have you two been using AI in your day-to-day lives out of curiosity? Laura, you mentioned using it for templates. A hundred percent. If I ever have to um, write copy for the show or figure out the best way to word something, I definitely use ChatGPT for that. I've also used ChatGPT to help with research, um, even like for today's discussion, for example, where I brought up some examples of historical strikes. I went to ChatGPT and asked it, hey, give me a list of, you know, the most prominent strikes in U.S. history. And it gave me some. It didn't give me all of them um, because I still had to go and do my own research to make sure that what ChatGPT was giving me was real, Um, but also to make sure that you know, it wasn't missing any relevant examples, and it it definitely was. So that's another example of how it's a great tool to get you started. I kind of think of it like Wikipedia. Um, you know how like when we were all in school, we all learned, even though our teachers, I don't, they weren't really there at this point. I think they are now, but we all learned that Wikipedia was a great jumping off point for research. You never cited Wikipedia as your source because anybody can edit that shit, right? (laughs) But you use it as a jumping off point to find peer-reviewed sources that you can use to reference. And I think of ChatGPT in a very similar way. You use it as that jumping off point, but you still have to do your due diligence. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't really personally used it too much, but I do think that it would be a great tool to help with like cover letters specifically which nobody ever really wants to write Mm -hmm. although i would definitely punch it up like if it were me if you're thinking about doing that but like cover letters are so tedious and i i I honestly think they're like a little bit pointless because you're sending the resume anyway but you know they're a thing that's required if you're trying to apply for big girl jobs. So why not use something like chat GPT to help you get started? And at least it like organizes your skill set. So then you can go in and like rearrange stuff. Yeah. It gets you started and it gets you thinking in ways you may not have. I Mm -hmm. like that it brings some alternate thinking to the table in terms of how I'm using it. I've actually used chat GPT recently and mid journey to help me on a little project that Pat and I are working on. I might talk about it at some point. Um, But I'm using ChatGPT to write articles on a subject. And the thing is, if I didn't have ChatGPT, I would just be writing these myself. I wouldn't be outsourcing this work because it's it's very specific type of content. I'm not going to go try to find somebody who knows about this content and then this material and then write it for me. So that's where ChatGPT fits in. And then MidJourney... Like, yes, I could hire an artist to do this, but A, this project is being bootstrapped. We don't have any money to work with right now. And B, I wanted to play around with MidJourney. I wanted to see what it could really do. Um, At some point, if this thing actually takes off, then maybe we would hire an artist because I want to sit there with somebody and be like, we want X, Y, and Z. And in fact, while I was working in MidJourney, it was frustrating at times, because I would kind of hit a wall with MidJourney. I wanted to say to it, just just do this, move that there, but you can't do that. And that's where hiring an artist comes in. I mean, like, I honestly, like, I don't take issue with, like, 
you know, little Andrew using mid journey to mock up some art that you may or may not use. But I totally don't think like a company that has money should be doing that. Like go and pay right. someone to yeah. do it, you know, and that's the difference, right? Oh, you mean like Marvel using right. it for the opening, the secret invasion. They used mid journey or something. Mm-hmm. Come on, Marvel. Yeah, it's like they could have hired someone, given someone a break. It's kind of like a really good example of this is um, the new Across the Spider-Verse movie. Um, I know, I'm sure Laura knows this. They hired like a, a 14-year-old animator or like a 15-year-old animator to do a sequence. It's like, why don't you get someone like that? Give someone a shot. And then it's a good feel-good story. Yeah. You can tell when something has heart mm-hmm. behind it, you know? Into the Spider-Verse and uh, Across the Spider-Verse are both examples of that. But mm-hmm. to your point, Andrew, about Secret Invasion, I haven't even started watching it yet. I have not heard good things. And I think, you know, a big company like Marvel and Disney using something like Midjourney, I think that's a symptom of the larger problem of Disney execs not getting it. And really trying to lean into this idea of automation and AI solving all their problems and saving them so much money. But the reality is that approach, that mentality is directly resulting in subpar quality of the content that they're putting out there. Yeah. Well, we're going to start wrapping this up. But speaking of AI, Laura, that's going to be our focus in After Dark, um, AI face filters. Yes. It was very fortuitous that we decided to cover all of this plus AI this week because I was recently triggered by the aged AI filter on (laughs) TikTok. Um, It made me look like a cracked out version of the crypt keeper with my flesh melting (laughs) off my face. So like it was, it was not cute. And it really got me to start thinking about the amount of face filters we're all using all the time, whether it's on social apps like TikTok or even on Zoom. So we're going to talk about that and about the impacts that that can subconsciously have on you in After Dark this week. Yeah, that'll be fun and interesting because we are definitely all using those face filters right now here on Zoom. The touch up my appearance filter. (laughs) It's helpful. It's helpful. But we won't have that once we uh, switch to Riverside. So it's going to be a rude awakening for all three of us. So that'll be available at patreon.com slash millennial this week. It's a part of Mega Millennial, which is the main show ad free with After Dark attached at the end. We also release our pre-show banter each week. We don't talk about it much, but just because it's kind of like a relaxed thing and we don't know what's going to happen. We also have that new executive producer tier as well. It's $20 a month and it gets you access to two of our planning meetings every month. And of course, you get all of the benefits underneath that. We wanted to launch this new tier to open up an opportunity for people who maybe do have a little more money to support us because we could really use that additional support as we depend less on advertisers. So there's more benefits to check out on our Patreon, including a uh, physical gift. The announcement will be coming soon for Bay and executive producer level patrons. We'll probably announce that in another month or two. Time for some recommendations. What do you have for us, Laura? 
I wanted to recommend for, you know, any of my skincare boys and girlies um, looking into Glossier's retinol. If you're looking for a new retinol, um, I only recently got on the retinol train and I will say this was not influenced by the aged filter on TikTok, but it definitely, uh, seeing that filter definitely got me back into a better habit of using my retinol more frequently than I was. Um, but this is a really good, I think, um, sort of middle of the road in terms of price point for retinol. Um, if you're looking for something that's, you know, not one of the higher end, super expensive retinols that you can get, um, from these professional um, dermatology companies. And if you're looking for something that maybe has, um, you know, a little more of a retinol formulation than what you can get in a drugstore, Glossier's is really good. I've been pleased with um, the effects that it's had for me. Um, and it's $35. So you can also bundle things through Glossier to get, you know, a deal and a little bit of a discount on those things. So I need to set up my recommendation a little bit for this week. Uh, over the weekend, I got up early, took myself on a little hot girl hike. And even though I was diligent with the sunscreen, I got very sunburned on this hike. And so if you also happen to be in the same boat at any point this summer in the future, I wanted to recommend you go out and get yourself some after sun gel with aloe vera and lidocaine. Lidocaine is a numbing agent, and I wouldn't recommend using this like the whole time you have your sunburn. But for the first few days, as it like settles down just so you can get a nice night's sleep and it's not bothering you, it's a really nice alternative to aloe. So yeah, use this for maybe like the first three days or so and then switch over to aloe vera. Um, but it's definitely going to help a little bit more than just regular aloe vera if you have a really bad sunburn like I do. Okay. That's a good call. Well, speaking of AI, I wanted to recommend, and I mentioned this feature on the show a few months ago. It wasn't released at the time. Spotify now has an AI DJ. Mm-hmm. Have you played with this, Pam? I have, yeah. It's okay. pretty good. How about you, Laura? It is. I haven't used it actually, but I'm going to I'm going to be getting on the road here a little bit after we finish the show, so maybe I'll use it for that. Okay, so yeah, you load up the mobile app, you go to your library, and I'm seeing it right towards the top there. It just looks like a playlist. It says DJ and it's blue and green. It's also available on the desktop app in your list of playlists. And like Pam said, it is really good. Uh, I've been very happy with it as a fun way to just get some music going without thinking about what type of music and vibe I want to go for. So when you start it, it'll say, hey, what's up, Andrew or Pam or whoever? And I hope you're having a great Tuesday. I've queued up some tracks for you since summer is just kicking off. Uh, Let's play some songs you used to listen to in previous summers. And then he'll play a couple songs and he'll come back for a minute and be like, that last song was We Are Young by Fun. Now I'm going to play, now because you've been spinning uh, Bruce Springsteen a lot, we're going to go for some classic rock for a little while. Stuff like that. I don't, they haven't shared like the exact list of like categories they drill down into, but I've seen a lot of clever stuff. I played it on 4th of July or that weekend, and they'd had some like 4th of July summer vibe going on too. Um, So yeah, it's cool. It really is personalized to you. And it's easy. If you're not liking what you're hearing, 
there is a button there that'll kind of like it'll switch the genre to something else it thinks you'll be into. But for the most part, I it's been pretty good in terms of what it's selecting. So yeah, check that out. Cool. So that's it for this week's episode. Make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss a new episode. And leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can contact us by writing to millennialshow at gmail.com or by using the contact form or anonymous confessional on millennialshow.com. And follow us on social media. We're Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Threads. And over on TikTok, we are Millennial Pod. Thanks, everybody, for listening. After Dark will start in a moment. I am Real Andrew. Well, I'm just Laura. And I'm Pamela. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.